On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Romana. And Romana was raised by a controlling physical abuser. It's a story of normalizing abuse, dissociation, triangulation, a stalking ex, and healing intergenerational trauma. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Romana. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Well, thank you for being here, Romana. And if you want to be a guest like Romana is today, please go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And we can never have enough stories, so please do send them in. And a content warning for this episode, as we do discuss sexual assault in this episode, physical abuse in this episode, it's a graphic description of physical abuse in this episode, as well as suicide. So that is your content warning for today. And today we are going to hear uh, Romana's story. And Romana went through a life full of abuse in this episode is Uh, really centered around a lot about uh, Romana's dissociation throughout her life due to the trauma that she has gone through and being raised from, you know, a narcissistic mother and all the effects that uh, came with that. And you'll hear about a bunch of different relationships in, in Romana's life. But, you know, the through line through everything is Romana's uh, mother and, you know, the dissociation that was created in, in childhood and how it affected her you know, going through life. So a big thank you to uh, Romana for being here with us today. And I'm going to get out of my way in your way. Romana, the floor is now yours. Well, Brandon, I want to start out by saying I'm really, really excited to be here. Um, I can only have this particular conversation now, even four or five months ago, it wouldn't have been possible. So it's really a good time for me to talk about my experiences with traumatic narcissism. So I'll start by setting the stage a little bit. Um, I'm 62 years old. I was raised by a mother who was a traumatic narcissist. And um, let me tell you, it's, it's quite a story. And as I said, it's really just the last three years that I've been in deep counseling that this has all started to make sense to me and everything has fallen into place. So the other thing I want to mention right at the get-go is I wouldn't be here now without my counselor, whom I'll call M, and she's worked with me over the past three years to really understand my background, um, the patterns, and hopefully people will be able to resonate with what I'm saying and look at their own life and their own patterns through a similar lens. So one of the things you also should know about me is I've always had a really strong desire to understand myself and to figure out why I do the things I do 
um, how I got to where I am and how I was able to be so successful in some parts of my life while other parts of my life just weren't working at all. And I can't look at my life without talking about my ancestors. So let's start back in Austria in the 1950s. My father was a very handsome, successful, athletic, 25-year-old man. He had finished school. He was working to take over the family business. Um, he was involved in the national sports team. He had many friends, was close to his family. And from pictures that I've seen, he was just a super, super happy looking man. The things I didn't know about him until much later was that his father had committed suicide when he was a young boy and that his mother, now widowed and running the family business, was left to raise three sons at a time when suicide was very much frowned upon. So we can see right there that although my dad's very outwardly happy and successful, um, he's probably got some issues inside that have never been dealt with. The other thing is at this point he was already engaged and was planning to get married to a woman in the same town that he was from. So let's look at my mom then. My mom was raised in the Czech Republic and her family was forced to flee after the Second World War. So there was some trauma in having to flee and then move to a new country where the family didn't know anyone and they were actually refugees. So my mom was a very, very attractive 20 year old when my dad was 26. She was very, very beautiful. She was a very talented artist and um, also worked in her family business. She had one sister who was older. And when they arrived in this town in Austria, her dad became very sick and he died. So there's quite a lot of trauma on my mom's side of the family. And there she was in a new country. Um, her father had died. They're living in refugee housing. And it's just a very, very insecure situation for them. So these two meet. And they meet uh, with a group of friends at a local pool. So my dad's in his bathing suit, um, you know, typical athlete's body, very, very handsome and happy. And I guess my mom caught his eye and she caught his eye. And next thing you know, they're dating. So I didn't know this at the time, but my mom was also engaged at the time. So they meet and within three months, obviously both of them have ended their engagements. They are very quickly planning a future together. And so far, you know, the story looks good. They've kind of trauma bonded over losing their fathers. And from this point, it could really go, the story could go anywhere. So unfortunately, what is happening though, that I didn't realize until much later, that my mother's narcissistic qualities started to show up around this time. So, of course, one of the first things she did was to separate him from his fiance, 
the next thing she did was force him to choose between sports and her. So he gave up his place on the national handball team and uh, chose to spend his time with her instead. My mom began to find fault with his family and friends. So very quickly, there were some rifts occurring between them. And she really didn't like him spending time with his family. It was either with his family or just alone with her. Um, and very quickly, they started to talk about marriage and about moving to Canada. So the, the story that I heard growing up was that it was my dad that instigated this move. But what I found out much later is that this was part of my mother's narcissistic pattern was to isolate my father from everything he knew and slowly but surely gain total control over him. So they plan a wedding. Um, my dad actually moves in with my mom's family. The ties with his own family are pretty well cut. And they start planning their move to Canada. So once they get to Canada, we're now talking the late 1950s. My dad gets a job. My mom gets a job. But after just a few years, they decide that this time apart is just not good enough they want to spend all their time together and they decide to quit their jobs and start a business doing art and jewelry so they're spending all their time together they're learning english they're making some friends and i believe this is the time when my mom really started with the control so that's what i'm born into um, the pictures I look at now, they're still happy looking people, but not so much. Of course, there's the trauma of leaving their families, my dad, his family, and my mom, her family, coming to a new country where you don't know the language and where you don't know anyone else. And, you know, basically starting a new life and along comes a child. So it's interesting that even throughout my pregnancy, my mom really focused on herself more than on the child that would end up being me. I've heard stories of right up to her due date. Um, she was helping my dad build a house for us. She was up on the roof. She was roofing. Uh, so it, it really kind of gives you a, an idea of some of the recklessness involved. and. When she shared about the birth story, again, it wasn't so much about me, but it was all the pain she experienced and all the discomfort and everything was me, me, me. She was afraid to hold me. Um, she was in so much pain afterwards, all, all about, you know, how things affected her and never any indication that she could have put herself in the place of the child that she had. So. Again, looking at pictures from that time, um, my mom was always perfectly dressed. Um, she was holding me perfectly dressed. We're, we're looking kind of solemn in most of the pictures. And it just seems like I'm kind of a prize that she's kind of holding out. It's almost like a, look what I've got here. You know, look, 
look what I've got. She's well-dressed and she's polite and she's well-behaved and kind of just like showing me off as an extension of her. So keep that point in mind because uh, it's going to keep coming up throughout my conversation here where my mother really wasn't ever able to see that I was a separate person from her. She always kind of interacted with me as though I was feeling what she was feeling, that my beliefs were her beliefs, and that automatically I should be doing what she thinks I would should be doing without even thinking that maybe I'm a separate person with my own talents, needs, and desires. So I just mentioned a couple minutes ago that uh, my mom wasn't very comfortable handling me or taking care of me when I was a newborn infant. And the story that I was told was that at these times, it was my dad that was bathing me and my dad that was comforting me or bringing me in for feedings. And uh, basically, she said she was just too afraid to handle me because I guess she thought I might break. So again, that's kind of a cue that she thought of me more as an object rather than, you know, some person that she needed to attach to and to form a really strong bond with and to have that really deep mother-child relationship that it's at the core of every healthy life. So I didn't find this out until much, much later. But at some point when we're at this stage of my life, my mom started to become jealous of my dad for spending all this time with me. And um, so apparently at some point she gave him the choice, you know, him choosing me or him choosing her. And I mean, it sounds like such a crazy thing. But by this time, my dad was already so much under her spell, so much under her control, so much trying to please her, not upset her. And, um, you know, really doing whatever he could to make her happy. So I guess at the time, this was the best choice that he could make to keep himself safe. Now, as you can imagine, on a very young child, who isn't particularly attached to mom, um, then all of a sudden the father who had been kind of the primary caretaker pulling back and um, I was just kind of left in limbo. So after that time, you know, it was my mother that took total control of me and this pattern played out for the rest of my life. I've never ever developed a close relationship with my father throughout my life and um I could never figure out why this was and the relationship with my mother obviously as we'll get to it was always quite fraught so it was always right from the get-go it was a triangling situation where the parents were one unit and the poor helpless child was kind of on her own. So so how old were you at this point when this was uh the situation was created? So I didn't know this until many, many years later. And I guess this would probably would have happened when I was about four to six months. Um so still, you know, very much around the time 
when those attachment styles are being formed. Now, Brandon, I know you've talked about attachment styles before. And so what this is called, it's called disorganized attachment. Basically, what happens is that the child doesn't know what they're going to get. They might get a parent who's very loving and affectionate and kind, and that will pull the child towards the parent. But it could also be that the child, that the child is treated badly or physically abused or emotionally abused or the parent pulls away and then the child is not able to understand what's going on or whether they're doing something to cause this behavior. And um, it's almost like a double bind situation. So the child is kind of always on guard and, and not knowing what's happening next and how they're going to need to react and always watching the parent to see what the best thing is for them to do. So how did you figure out that that is what happened to you at that age? So when my mother passed away five years ago, my dad had already gotten quite advanced dementia, but I was able to spend a couple of hours with him where he was still totally lucid and clear. And he actually brought forth the topic himself at that time. He said, you know, um, now I really feel bad that I missed out on being in a relationship with you growing up. But, um, you know, it was just so hard. Your mother was so jealous. She was an artist. She would have moods. She would blow up. And I just thought it was easier to just, you know, do what I could to keep her calm and happy. Um, so he's reacting to your mom's reactions. And, yeah. and, so, and so, so, so he's kind of walking on eggshells in a lot of ways and trying to prevent things. And part of that prevention is consciously letting you go into her arms and, yes. and, and exactly. to, and to not, be overly doing things on your side as to upset your mom. So he's consciously um, really creating a space between you two because if he fills it in any sort of way, your mom is going to freak out. So he's kind of at this point already becoming an enabler and he has no idea that that's what he's doing, but at a, you're not even one years old and he's enabling your mom's behavior. And I guess the word would be, um, um, behavior, uh, toward you and whatever uh, abuses might happen will be swept under the rug. And that has started at a very young age. Very, very early age. You've got it exactly right there, um, Brandon. So I will get to some of those examples later where, you know, he witnessed or participated in, in abuse, but um, that's for later on. So my mother was extremely overprotective. 
when I was a young child. And she liked to tell stories of how they would go out for dinner and I'd be in a high chair and people would say, oh, look at your little girl. She's so well behaved. Look how well she's eating or how polite she is or how quickly I was toilet trained or how well I slept through the night. So from what we know about trauma, um, those were reactions of an infant just trying to stay safe. So on one hand, we have my dad trying to keep himself safe. And of course, he has a lot more leeway than I do. But for someone so young, of course, that's before language. Um, so it's all inside just feeling that there might be danger and understanding that one needed to do whatever one could to stay safe. So this is where dissociation comes in. Um, what they call this that I'm describing is an attachment trauma. And basically that occurs when the person who's supposed to be taking care of you and loving you and keeping you safe is also the person who's hurting you and that you're afraid of. So as you can imagine, that's something that any brain can't really process. And especially if it's a very young child or an infant. So in some fortunate people, and I happen to be one of them, um, the brain actually goes into a dissociate mode. So for some people, that can mean that they leave their body and they're up on the ceiling watching what's going on and they're somewhat aware of what's going on. For other people like myself, it was just a total dissociation so that uh, the part that wanted to get away or the part that was being hurt emotionally or physically just kind of checked out. And then there was another mode of my personality that just kind of stayed to deal with whatever it was that was happening. So an interesting thing here is that I can talk about this dissociation now, but it's really just been the last couple of years where I've recognized that this has been a whole pattern that's happened my whole life. And that's going to help to explain why I got into some of the relationships I did and, um, you know, why I'm finding myself where I am in my life. So that's, it's just another really fascinating thing. Some people know from quite a young age that they're dissociating, but for me, it was just such an automatic thing that I was just gone. And what happens, of course, is that when someone dissociates, they don't have any memory of what happened. There may be a flash of some small memory that comes in. But um, in my case, that means that before kindergarten, um, I have perhaps one early memory. And most of the years of elementary school, I don't remember anything really. You know, there's maybe four or five events that I remember. Um, and you can imagine how challenging that is when you're talking and thinking back to those childhood times and all your friends are saying, oh, well, you did this, or do you remember we did this? 
and there's just no memory of that time at all. So let's talk for a minute about that first memory that I have. Um, I'm in my crib and I'm in my parents' bedroom and I'm very sensitive to sights and sounds and smells and tastes. And also my body's already attuned to picking up things like anger and frustration, um, you know, very tuned into my mom's mood to know whether, you know, it might be safe to approach her or whether it might be safer just to go to my room. Um, so, so I was very aware of what was going on. And, and I don't think I even had language at the time. But I just remember a very strong bodily sensation that there's something wrong here. Like, it just didn't feel right. Um, you know, I was sleeping two feet away from my parents. So I'm sure they were having sex. Uh, that's kind of a boundary violation as well. And um, yeah, it just it just is the only memory I really have. And for most of my life, I thought that was from when I was under two years old. But then, of course, later I find I, they had me in the bedroom until I was almost in kindergarten. So my mom was so afraid to leave me out of her sight that, um, you know, I had to be right next to them, um, you know, just in case I started to choke or something during the night and she could be there to save me. So for four years, I'm in my parents' bedroom, um, you know, as they're doing whatever it is parents do in their bedroom. So I find that really, really quite disconcerting. My mom, again, as I mentioned earlier, she really didn't see me as separate from herself. And it really started to show up, you know, kindergarten, grade one. Um, I'll mention one thing. My parents spoke German. We spoke German at home. And when I went to kindergarten, that's when I started learning English. So I'm going into a new situation at school. And I'm trying to learn the lay of the land. I'm trying to learn English. And so, you know, there's obviously a little bit of stress going on for me there. And that resulted in me being nauseous every morning before school. And um, yeah, I was, I was nauseous and I, I couldn't eat breakfast. And then off I went to school. Um, so at that age, uh, my mom decided that it was time for me to get involved in the arts. Because of her upbringing, she'd never been able to take piano lessons. And she'd never been able to take ballet lessons. So, of course, uh, without considering whether I might have interest, off I went to ballet school. And then off I went to piano lessons. So we can already see that... Um, it's becoming much, much more controlling of my time, what I do with my time, and just the total lack of being able to choose anything that I would want to do. I really didn't like ballet much. You know, I just plugged through for years until I was 13, twice a week lessons. Um, you know, really, it wasn't my thing. And same with the piano. You know, I'd be practicing the piano. My friends would be out playing. So I was really, really missing out on quite a lot of socialization in those days. 
And then, of course, there was Saturday morning German school. Can't forget that. Got to learn to read and write and speak. Uh, so a lot of my time was already used up. Now, at this time, my parents are working together. They're self-employed. They're working together. And so, you know, basically the three of us are around the house together most of the time, except for when I'm school. Um, what I can say also about that time, I do remember a couple of physical abuse situations at that time. So the one in particular that I remember is um, I was outside and I had brand new sandals on. I must have been about six and I stepped on a nail and the nail went through the sandal, through my sock and into my foot. Uh, it was a rusty nail. It hurt quite a bit. And when I went to tell my mom, she just flew into a rage. How dare I ruin my new sandal? Um, so, you know, I was, I was punished for that. Uh, another incident where she liked to use um, slapping in the face as a punishment for a small child. So the drill was that I had to stand in front of her while she berated me, and then I was to keep my hands at my side so that she could slap me. So, of course, as a child or anyone, if you're going to be slapped, what you want to do is you want to put your arms over your face and um, crouch down and protect yourself. So, Brandon, just as you had said earlier, by this time, my dad was colluding with my mom. And it seems he just wanted to make it easier her, for her to just get this over with. So my dad came up behind me and he pulled me up to standing by my arms. And then he took my arms and held them behind me. So here I am. I'm just a child. My dad's holding me still so that my mom can slap me. And again, you know, this is where dissociation would kick in. Because... The double bind, you know, this mother who professes to love me, um, you know, she's she's yelling at me and she's hurting me physically. I can't flee, so I've, it just becomes one of those checking out moments. Another instance that I remember was she also liked to have me kneel in the corner. So she also had a very humiliative streak where she liked to humiliate me or my dad. So we were having company over and I was being punished for something just before they showed up. So she had me kneeling in the corner when the company arrived. And um, it was a couple, her friends, and their two daughters who were around my age. So they come in, um, you know, I'm obviously must be feeling humiliated kneeling there as they're, you know, walking around the house and sitting down. And then finally, my mom said I could get up and then I was supposed to entertain these kids. So again, um, when those strong feelings come, definitely check out time. And from what I can see now, when I did check out, it wasn't just for a brief period. Um, you know, it could be days, weeks, months where I wouldn't come back to be present um 
so yeah, for all those things, uh, my dad was around and he not only didn't intervene on my behalf, you know, he condoned it or participated. And I think that was at the time even more hurtful. You know, I mean, yeah, hitting, okay. But again, the person who's supposedly there to protect you as well, just not not being willing or able to do that. So at school during this time, if your friends were to describe you because you were not able to maybe describe yourself, what would they say about you? You know, that's really hard to say because you've got to remember if I'm checked out, um, I don't know what I'm like. I know that I was quite smart, but I was very distracted. Um, I didn't, I, I just found learning quite easy and I did really well till grade eight. Uh, I didn't really want to do any sports or any activities at school because I was so busy. And um, yeah, I mean, I didn't have a whole lot of friends, but they probably would have just thought I was very quiet, uh, kept to myself and um, an only child of immigrant parents who were different because they were artists. So, you know, just uh, didn't really fit in right from the get-go. Did you go to sleepovers or anything like that? I did. And it was interesting because my mom liked to entertain my friends at our house. So I have pictures of these beautiful parties that she put together. She was dressed up like a fashion model. Um, you know, there'd be all kinds of fancy foods that these kids would never get at home. You know, she'd be taking us to mini golf and having a special sleepover. And again, I seem to kind of be the forgotten one, you know, and it, it just seemed like she was trying to suck up all the admiration and all the attention. It's a very it's a very controlled narrative that is going on. Totally, yeah. totally, mm -hmm. yeah. Because they seemed like the per we seemed like the perfect family. Yeah, she you not going to other people's places in one way provides like the idea that you don't know how other things work, but with, right. but with someone like her, she's really controlling a narrative. So when these children go back to these other homes, that they mm -hmm. are like, oh man, you have to go see what's going on over here, and they might admire the yeah. lifestyle that you're in, which makes the parents think the greatest thing of. Of uh, you're, 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 there's a trustworthy family who goes all out for their child. Very much so. And I mean, the things my mom told me as a child, she said, uh, Ramona, you come from such a good family. This is a good family. Um, she would say things like, other people are jealous of her. So she often lied to people because she didn't want them to know the truth. Um, there were times when she wanted me to lie for her, which was totally like, again, it's a double bind, right? You want me to lie to, you know, back up your story? Well, because my dad did it, you know, it was expected that I do it too. 
so this is kind of a, a turning point for me internally because at this time things could have gone really bad for me um so there's some part of me as i said right from the get-go i just knew that something was wrong you know i didn't know what it was of course because i wasn't exposed to the outside world or really other families i was being told everything was great at home you know that people looked at us with envy and jealousy um but but i knew there was something wrong and i could see the way my mom was treating my dad and you know again i mean i've just got a child's understanding but my dad was just like a silent boy you know he kind of was already walking around with his head down um my mom would go into a rage and he would just not even respond she was constantly belittling him you know saying without you without me you'd be nothing um you're so lucky to have me you know do what do what i say or i'll leave you so he was totally under the coercive control of my mom basically she controlled what he ate and how much and when um what he wore how his hair was combed and if it wasn't up to her standard she would ridicule him either publicly or privately um you know the quality of the work he did in their business you know it was never good enough um the things she did were so much better and that you know he was just a nothing um you know, and and again, as a very sensitive child, I mean, that was really hard to be in that situation, to hear that and to, you know, pick up on the shame he must have been feeling. So again, always a good opportunity to just to check out when when things got too heavy. So yeah, so my dad just kind of over the years just kind of got more and more quiet. She got more and more controlling, you know, even with going to the bathroom and things like that. Um, you know, I mean, he's an adult, he's in his 30s and 40s, and she's saying, Oh, you know, maybe you have to go to the bathroom. Like, it was like a total control. So, here's where something happened where I unconsciously decided I'm not going to be under her control like that. So, it's really quite remarkable. Um, my counselor and I have talked about this a whole lot because quite easily I could have just submitted to keep myself safe you know just let her control me to just give up as a child and you know live my whole life under her thumb but there was something in me that we still can't put our finger on that just said no it was a decision kind of where it was like I'm gonna do enough for her that she wants but I'm not going to sell my soul so it was almost like I was the decisions were being made in in the moment each moment it's like okay she wants me to do this yeah I'm gonna do it but this I'm not gonna do so so there was like a constant awareness of situating myself um, as a separate person 
And it was really, really challenging. I mean, she would say things like, oh, Ramona, I'm cold. And she'd say, you should put on a sweater. Seeing that as a young person, that I did have subjectivity, I did have my own experience, but she couldn't see that. And obviously my father, he really couldn't see it either because he was so tied into her subjectivity as well, her way of seeing things. Um, so one thing I haven't really mentioned is that my mom didn't really trust other women. So one of the messages she gave me growing up was that I should never trust a girl. Um, you know, that girls would betray me or be envious or whatever. So when I got to high school, um, she would never let me go to the mall or anything with girls. But we're just going to get into my very first romantic relationship so I was 12 or 13 and I'm not allowed to go anywhere with my girlfriends but my parents or rather my mom decides that this boy is going to take good care of me and that I can go out with him so he was a couple of years older and I was just so happy you know to be away from my parents for any reason. So this was really, really quite an exciting time for me. Um, he was the brother of a girlfriend that I had. So it was fun, you know, to be able to hang out at their house a little bit and we'd go to the movies and we'd go for walks. And here's the thing. If I had known anything about red flags, um, there would have been hundreds of red flags. And I cringe now at how innocent and naive I was getting into this relationship and how my parents, you know, they left me in his care. They really didn't know or probably care what was going on. So here's, here's how it went. Um, he turned out to be very controlling. Then he started to develop some anger issues. So we went out for a couple of years and then, um, I was 15. I was at a sleepover at their house and I guess he decided tonight was going to be the night without really telling me. So this is, it's not going to be too graphic, but just saying that I didn't know anything about sexual assault or rape. So in the middle of the night, uh, he came down to the couch where I was sleeping. And, you know, basically he forced himself onto me and inside me. And I was checked out, I'm sure. And then I just remember afterwards going into the bathroom, um, crying and bleeding. But of course, I never told him. So again, it was one of those instances where I had to protect myself. And I knew that enraging my mother was not going to be worth it. I knew that I wouldn't be able to get comfort there. And, you know, that I'd only be punished for making a scene. So again, you know, those are things that just kind of got dissociated. And I really didn't remember them for the longest time. But 
that did give me the impotence to end that relationship. Thank goodness. So from here, let's get into the last time your mom physically abused you before we get into, you know, your other relationships and how your mom affected those. I went after school. The drill was I would report to my parents in the studio across the street where they worked. And they were in a period of making stained glass windows. So you can imagine lots of glass and lots of lead. And I still can picture it. My dad's in the back doing some work. My mom's at the front. And she says, you were smoking? And I could just tell she was so angry. And I said, no. And she said, don't lie to me. And she picked up a piece of lead that you would use. So it was about three foot long, um, maybe an inch wide. And she started whipping it around in a circle and it was coming pretty close to my eyes so as i stood there i put my hand over my eyes and it sliced me right down to the bone so i've got this injury um it's bleeding it's hurting like hell and you know the basic narcissist answer well look what you made me do um i went home across the street and checked out but the next day when I went to school, I went to the office and I said, would I be able to see the nurse, the school nurse? And they said, why? And I showed them my finger. And literally, I mean, it was flashed open right to the bone. And they said, what happened? And I said, my mom hit me with a piece of lead. So back in the day, they weren't allowed to let you see the nurse unless they had your parents' permission. So my parents were phoned and then my parents had to come in and talk to the principal about this. And um, then what happened when I got home that night, my mom was enraged because I had shamed her. You know, how dare you tell people this? And and so, you know, it's like being blamed for my own abuse. But on the positive note, she never touched me again physically. So that was kind of the end of an era. So eventually you start dating someone and this person becomes a lifelong stalker for you, unfortunately. And this person's older brother knew your parents and you through one of their groups. And the older brother was actually hitting on you and they were 30 years old and married at the time and you were 15. And in hindsight for you, this is a red flag that another family member of the person that you're about to start dating has these issues already, that they're doing this to you, a 30-year-old to a 15-year-old. But you're looking at this time to, you know, have a boyfriend. You're kind of dead set on having one. You want one in your life, and you decide that you don't mind this setup at all. So you arrange a date. So what happens from here? And so we arrange to have a date. And the plus to him was that he had a car. So, you know, for a 15-year-old girl, um, that's a pretty exciting thing. He would wait outside me in his car after school. And then he'd drive me to work. And then after work, we'd go out and do something. And he'd drive me home. So the interesting thing about this 
fellow is that my parents at the time, they did not like him at all. Um, they didn't think he was smart enough. They didn't think he was good enough. You know, his mom was a widow. They didn't like that. But of course, as a 15-year-old, that would make me just want to be with him more. So, again, there was quite a lot of trust in him as able to take care of me. And as we'll hear soon, that trust was very displaced. So by this time, I'm finishing high school. Um, we'd been sleeping together. We were kind of pre-engaged. We were definitely not seeing other people. And again, I find myself in this situation where somebody's controlling me. So. I'm just glad that they didn't have the tracking apps back then, but he wanted to know where I was all the time. So, for example, if I was out with my parents, he would park across the street in his car and just wait there until I got home. I mean, that's that's creepy. And in a normal world, you know, parents would say, oh, that's creepy. That's inappropriate. You know, let's tell him to get lost. But none of those things happen. So, you know, things accelerate. And, um, yep, we're having sex. Then just before I'm starting college, I guess I should mention what it was like at his family's house. So, as you can imagine, this was not a very healthy family. Um, I'm dating the youngest, and there's three elder siblings with partners, so there's three other men in the family, and, you know, I was like the cutie patootie, so every time we would come into the house, they'd make these, like, kind of remarks, um, you know, and, and make sexual remarks about my body or whatever. Again. I didn't think there was anything wrong with that, which still to this day sounds bizarre, you know, or they'd be trying to rub up against me or they'd be asking, you know, my boyfriend about, you know, whether he got, got it last night or things like that. Um, and the women in that family, they just totally just didn't do or say anything. So it really didn't feel like anything wrong was going on. And, um, you know, I kind of owned it. I just thought, well, there's something wrong with me that this is bothering me. So quite early on, something that would accelerate was the whole stalking behavior. And this really started happening when I was in college. Uh, I'll just give one instance. So my girlfriend and I were going to go to the pub after class, kind of a normal college thing to do. And she was driving and all of a sudden we noticed his car speeding very quickly up behind us and then trying to pass us. And, you know, he's honking and screaming. Um, and this is obviously a very dangerous situation. It's like chicken. So, you know, I mean, there's probably traffic coming the other lane and um 
it just was really, really scary. And so those are the types of things he would do. Or if I was out somewhere with a friend, he'd be following and then just sitting in the parking lot. But again, you know, when you grow up in coercive control, you don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just thought I was being treated the same way that my dad was being treated by my mom. But I guess that's not really right because although part of me thought it was okay, there was definitely another part of me that didn't think it was okay and that was always trying to get away from him just the same way I had tried to get away from my parents. So we continued seeing each other throughout college. It kind of came to a head when I wanted to go to the graduation dance. And this is another incident that I can picture. We're in my parents' living room and we're fighting because I want to go to the dance and he wants to take me out somewhere else. And he actually, he grabbed my neck and he just started shaking me by the neck. Um, and again, you know, I dissociated and don't really remember what happened afterwards. But now I know that that's a really frightening stage in a relationship because when a man tries to strangle a partner, that's often the last step before murder. So anyway, of course, I knew nothing of that. And um, of course, that probably should have been enough to get me to end the relationship once and for all. But as many of your other guests have mentioned, there's that cycle. He's so sorry. He doesn't know what came over him. It's never going to happen again. Here's flowers. You know, let's go on a trip. You know, here's some more jewelry. And then I would just kind of forget that it happened. And then, you know, we'd be off to just another cycle. So, believe it or not, we got married. Uh, so this was 1981. I was 19, just finishing college. And um, we eloped to Niagara Falls. And on our wedding night, I had this very special kind of a wedding negligee on. And he just grabbed it and he just ripped it in two. So, you know, that kind of set the stage for him thinking that he had ownership of me. It was so interesting because I just always knew that at some point, I was going to get away from him for good. And even um, agreeing to marry him was part of my exit strategy because I thought, okay, if I'm married, he's going to leave me alone and stop stalking me. And then I can find a way to get away safely. So, you know, again, very naive, magical thinking. So, Thinking that he would be easier on me was foolish. Um, he actually doubled down even more. He didn't want me to learn how to drive. So I had to sneak out behind his back and take driver training and get my license. He didn't want me to even be alone at home. He was always accusing me of cheating on him. 
um, you know, looking at other men, that kind of thing. And at one point, he got a job, like a late night pizza delivery, which was great because I thought he's going to be out of the house now. But he seemed to think that I would be coming along with him in the car with him until 3 a.m. as he delivered pizzas. So I think he managed to get me to go twice, but that just was one of the things that didn't last. So one instance that kind of was the breaking point, the end of this relationship, thank goodness you're probably thinking, um, I was invited to a party by someone at work and I decided I'm going. And my husband did the usual, oh, well, you know, stay at home. You know, we can do something more fun. And uh, he was going to be working that night. So I said, well, why don't you come after work? You know, I'll go there. We can meet up after work. And he just said, no, no way. And uh, I thought, well, this is it. I'm going. So I put on my big girl panties, went to the party. And I had such fun. Um, you know, it was really the first time in a while that I made a decision for myself, something that really, that I wanted to do, and I'm just going to do it. And, you know, whatever the consequences, I was just going to deal with them, whatever. So I get home from the party about two in the morning. Um, the house is dark. And so I carefully open the front door and my husband had set up something that I would walk into and knock over so that I would make a big noise and frighten myself. So we had like chairs stacked with a phone on top. And I just thought, what the? So I had a shower. I came up to bed. He immediately started. Oh, why'd you have a shower? You know, you must have slept with someone, blah, 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 blah. And I just thought, oh, you know. I've just about had enough of this. And so the, the next morning, um, I woke up. And this is something that happens after a period of dissociation, where it's like I wake up and I can see everything really clearly. And I looked at him and I thought, oh, my God, like, who is this person anyway? What am I doing in this situation? And the whole weight of you know this nine-year relationship came down and said i've got to get out of here and i've got to get out now and that's exactly what i did so i packed a few things i went to my parents house and um again in the happy ever after version of the story my parents would welcome me with open arms and they would you know say they support me and that they would help me out in any way they could. But you probably guessed that this isn't a necessarily a happy ever after story with my parents. So I show up on their door um, with my things and all of a sudden they decide that they think he's the greatest guy. And of course, unbeknownst to me, they're triangling behind my back. So he's kind of using the narcissist playbook saying, oh, I love her so much. You know, I just want her back. I want to have a baby. Um, you know, she's such a crazy woman, but I love her anyways. And 
you know, between him and my mom, they kind of then formed together against me. And as you can imagine, my dad, well, he sided with them because that was the most convenient thing for him to do. So what I start facing at my parents' house, my mom is saying, oh, you know, you should go back. He's called me up crying. Uh, he loved you so much. You know, he, maybe you should have a baby. And I'm telling her, no, I'm living in an abusive relationship. A baby is the last thing that needs to be brought into this situation. So the pressure was on. And um, I found myself not being supported by my parents. I found myself getting phone calls from his family saying I should take him back. And this is where the stalking behavior ramps up. So I know from many of your guests, they've been through stalking. And even though it's not physical, it's a very, very frightening thing to see someone you're trying to avoid show up where you are. And this was made even worse by the fact that I would tell my parents, you know, if you want to talk to him, fine, but I don't want to hear about it and don't have him come over while I'm here. Right. So that, I mean, obviously that seems like a pretty clear boundary, but no, of course that couldn't be, couldn't be enforced. So I'd be driving home from work. I was still staying at their place and I'd approach the house and his car would be there. And so I would just, of course, keep driving. And I'd be really, really upset, um, you know, and I'd have nowhere to go. So finally, I got myself my own apartment. And um, he would leave presents for me on my doorstep. So I had purchased a waterbed. Next thing you know, he's left waterbed sheets for me. Um, and all this time, he's still telling my parents how much he loves me. And, you know, they're colluding to try and get me to go back. But thank goodness that separation quickly turned into a divorce. But unfortunately, the story with him does not end there. So this ex-husband of yours would continue to stalk you. You know, you'd go to the bar and he'd be there. You'd go to the park and he'd be there. He'd show up there. He'd ask you to come back. But you really stayed strong with him and, and said no and were very, very firm on that. But from here, you do eventually get married again to someone that you do have a child with. And they end up being abusive uh, as well. You're with them for nine years. And during this time, your stalking ex continues to try and get you back. And what they do here is they continue contact with your mom, you know, getting info on you about your whole entire life from her, including where you are living. And he's just really doing his best to insert himself into your life. And your mom is a big facilitator of this. And she becomes friends with your ex-husband, which is, you know, not a great thing for her to do. It's, you know, it's very disrespectful what she's doing here. She's not thinking of you. This is someone who has abused you and she's doing this. 
she's having this person come over to her house to do repairs, mow the lawn, shoveling snow. He's at your parents' place, you know, a couple of times a week. So your mom is still part a part of your life. And it's a big problem what's going on here. And then eventually, you know, while this is going on, while you're married and you're being abused at the same time with your new husband and the person you have a child with, you eventually decide to move across the country. So what happens from here? This was a time when my mom really was having a very, very hard time because she lost even more control of me now. Um, so there was a lot of crying on her part. How could you do this to me? Um, you know, how could you take away my only grandchild? You know, you're not thinking of me at all. You're only thinking of yourself. And, you know, by this time, I really realized that we just weren't living in the same world. She and my dad were in one world, um, you know, where everything was about my mom. And I was in my own world with my own family where I was thinking of us as we should be. So when we moved so far away, it was like I was being let out of jail. There was this freedom and spaciousness and happiness and energy and enthusiasm. And I very, very quickly became very successful. So I started a business. Um, I was, I had a cable TV show. I was doing all kinds of special events and just really, really happy that all the energy I had used previously to manage the relationship with my mom and my dad was now being channeled into something really creative. So I really, really loved that time. It was a, a very happy time. But in the background, there were problems brewing. So while I was becoming more and more successful. Uh, my husband, who had seemed fine and happy until this point, started acting very strangely. Um, it was almost like he was not wanting me to be successful. Um, it was like he was being passive aggressive. He was just making things as difficult as possible for me. And one of the things he did when he got involved in a volunteer fire department, usually those aren't the kind of guys that really look to their wives with much respect. Uh, we were kind of all grouped together under the term the wives. And so my my husband kind of adopted that kind of a bit of a misogynistic attitude towards me as well. Um, you know, my son is thriving because mom is happy. And for a while, everything seemed perfect. And then my husband's behavior accelerated. So he would have some angry outbursts. There might be some throwing or some yelling. And it's interesting because this was really registering with me this time. I could see the acceleration. And I knew that, you know, I'm going to have to take some action pretty quickly. So there was one big argument when my son was about three. Um, my husband was shouting. He punched a hole in the wall. He threw a glass 
at me and at my son that shattered. And, um, you know, my son is in my arms screaming and my husband's trying to, you know, rip him out of my arms and something kicked in. So again, this is one of these moments where it's like, what am I doing in this situation? You know, who is this guy and what does he think he's doing to me and to this child? You know, this is it. This, you know, this has to end. So I tried to talk to him and say, um, I'm running my business out of the house and it's the child's home. Could you please leave? And it was like, maybe if you get some counseling and I get some counseling, you know, at some point we can repair this. But he dug his heels in and he wouldn't leave. And so it was this uncomfortable situation where, you know, we're trying to be separated in the same house. And finally, I just thought, I've got to find a place to live. So I found a little place for my son and myself to move into. And I found an office for my business. And um, it's interesting because he even helped us move in. You know, everything seemed fine. He didn't seem overly upset. But about two weeks after this, he dropped my son off to the new apartment where we were living and he wanted to talk to me. So I said, sure. And we started to talk and he started to get very agitated and angry. And I told him, I said, you know, I don't want to have this discussion while our son is awake. Why don't you come back tonight after he's gone to bed? So I put my son to bed. He comes back. Same thing. He tries to be really sweet and cry and say, I love you so much. Please come back. And when I said no, then he just suddenly turned and started shouting at me. And I said, you know what? We're not having this discussion here in my home you need to leave and we can discuss this some other time so he goes storming out and the last thing he said to me on his way out was he called me a cold unfeeling bitch and then he jumped into his pickup truck and he roared off and it's interesting one of those moments of clarity i remember thinking oh i hope he doesn't drive off the mountain you know he we were just so angry but then i thought well there's nothing I can do about this. I'm just going to unplug my phone and go to bed. And, you know, tomorrow's another day. So in the morning, um, my son and I get up and we have, you know, the whole routine to get out of the house. And we're running a little bit late. And um, my husband and I, we had agreed that I was going to stop at the house to pick something up on my way to town. And as we were approaching the house, I just, again, had this clear moment where, do I have time? Do I not have time? And I just thought, no, I'm just going to keep driving. So um, I drop my son off. I get to my office. I play my answering machine. And there's my husband's voice on the machine. He's crying. He's telling me how much he loves me and our son and how sorry he is. And, of course, I freaked out and I called the police and they said, oh, we already have someone on their way up there to do a wellness check. Please stay where you are and have a friend stay with you. So, you know, another one of those situations where I knew 
inside that he was dead. Um, the police shows up with a couple of victim services people. And I took one look at them and I knew. Um, so they said, your husband was found deceased. Again, one of my moments of clarity where I was like at this fork in the road. And it was really clear to me that I had to decide, you know, am I just going to deal with this and move on? Or am I going to let this, you know, totally destroy me in my life? And I, I chose to quickly move on. And what happened was then I had, that's my last memory. So from there, I pretty well dissociated. For how many years? So the interesting thing about dissociation with me, as I mentioned at the beginning, is that sometimes I feel myself slipping away. And this was one of those instances. And then days, weeks, months, years can go by without me really coming into presence. Um, or, you know, there can be brief little memories, but the rest is all gone. So this is something that I'm just really still digging into right now as I work with my counselor about the dissociation. And I'm really just understanding that, um, you know, the brain is an amazing thing. The fact that I could push or move that part of my memory out of the way so that I could make it through the day and raise my son and run my business and travel and have friends and have a very successful life. Um, you know, it's really quite astounding. And at the same time, I realized how much I missed. So although I was there with my son to comfort him and to love him, he must have realized that Mommy's here, but she's not really here. So those are some of the things that I'm just really starting to look at now and looking back through different eyes of how this dissociation has really, it's given me the opportunity to make it through difficult times, but it's also kept me from experiencing some really wonderful times and from having really authentic relationship and being present so eventually you do get into another relationship but you really dissociate a lot from everything in in this relationship it doesn't really last and you don't remember much at all and then eventually as you're working on that stuff you're working on your dissociation through a life skills coach you know, you, you eventually decide to become a life skills coach yourself about, you know, a lot of the things that you have been learning and you start to work with single moms, first nations, people with disabilities and people that have gone through abuse. And while that's happening, you know, let's go back here to talk about how your first husband, the stalker again, kind of becomes part of your life. He's still on the scene. Um, He's now married and had kids. He's still hanging around regularly with my parents. Um, sometimes I would be talking to my mom and she'd say, oh, guess who's here and wants to say hello to you? 
and he'd be there and she'd put him on the phone and I would just hang up because, you know, this just was such a boundary violation. This was something that I just didn't want to deal with. Um, when I would send my son to visit my parents in the summer, I would say, please, I don't want my son to have any interactions with him or his kids. And then my son would come home and say, oh, why did I have to go out swimming and mini golfing with this guy and his kids? They're nothing to me. So on one hand, I wanted my son to have a relationship with my mother. But on the other hand, I could see she was just repeating the same patterns of um, boundary violations and control. Again, I was still quite naive at the time. I didn't realize until much later that course she was trashing me to him behind my back so I found out much later that she was saying things like oh your mom is crazy she needs a psychiatrist um, and who knows what else she was telling him so all those interactions with my parents I thought they would be positive but it turns out that um, you know once a narcissist always a narcissist Anything that could be done to separate him and his love from me was fair game. So eventually your mom passes away about five or six years ago, and your dad actually has dementia at this point as well. So tell us what happens from here. I was able to arrange from a distance a long-term care facility for my dad, and so very quickly he was moved into the long-term care facility. And then I had to come back. And of course, the only person that had keys to my parents' house was my ex-husband. So basically he was sounding quite excited that he'd be seeing me again and that he could show me around all their financial information. And I said, no, that's not gonna happen. I said, you leave that key in the mailbox and I don't want to see you at all. So that's exactly how it went down. Um, I got there. I was able to get into the house. And, um, you know, the condition that my parents were living in under his care was just appalling. But that's another story. And then um, I had the locks changed because I knew he would still have a key. And um, then... You know, off to see my dad in the long-term care facility. And yeah, we're getting to the end of the story. So one of the good things that happened out of all this was even though he had the dementia and the Alzheimer's, we were able to have a couple of conversations where he was completely lucid. And he was actually able to say to me, you know, um, when you were an infant, your mom was very demanding of my attention and affection and love. And basically, I chose her over you just to keep the peace. And um, he was able to acknowledge to me that, you know, perhaps that hadn't been the wisest decision. So it was really wonderful for me to get at least a little bit of closure in that situation. 
and um, he lived for another five years and he just passed away last October and such an interesting time for me because now that I'm an orphan um, I've really had the opportunity to look at my whole life plus my ancestry for more of an objective view and see how each person played a role and how what came in the generation before them affected the way that they would interact with their children. So, it, I mean, of course, I'd had that knowledge as book knowledge, but being able to actually understand more about the people in my family and to look through all the pictures and to kind of make a huge ancestry tree, you know, thinking of how my father's father's suicide would affect him and then it affected me and then it affected the way I dealt with my husband's suicide and the way it dealt, you know, affected my son and how this types of things just keep being passed down um, from generation to generation. So as I said at the beginning, I'm 62 years old. And if you're listening to this, there are a couple of things that I want to share that you might resonate with. So no matter what age you are, when you find yourself getting out of this type of relationship or beginning counseling or starting to understand your patterns or starting to look within, it's never too late. I know some of your guests, Brandon, have said, you know, I can't believe I didn't figure this out and I'm 30 or I'm in my 40s and I'm just starting to understand this. It's really just been the last three years for me. So from 59 to 62, that I've really been able to dig in and figure this stuff out. The biggest thing really is coming to terms with the dissociation. And I've learned a lot of strategies of how I can learn to stay present more. And it's quite interesting in some of the episodes of this podcast I've listened to recently. A lot of people are starting to use the word dissociation. So if that's something that a person thinks that they're experiencing, there's a whole lot of really good information about that. Um, as I said before, it's a natural brain activity that kicks in to protect us. So if you have any words of wisdom or advice, what would it be? Well, I knew you were going to ask this, Brandon. So I've thought about this. And my main advice would be if you see something, say something. And that can be broadly applied to any part of life. If you see a child being abused by a parent, you need to say something. If your next door neighbor is being beaten, you need to say something or call the police. Um, 
And I say that for a couple of reasons. A, because I think if someone had done that on my behalf, um, things might have turned out differently for me. I would have felt that I had some support, that I had someone I could talk to, and that maybe as a result of that, I would have felt safer and perhaps not ended up with this relationship with my parents the way it is throughout my whole life. Because the one intervention that there was at my high school, when the vice principal spoke to them, um, although I was punished, that was the last time they ever hit me. Um, and it's really not that hard once you know what to look for. Um, it doesn't have to be a bruise on your hairdresser's arm or anything that can be seen with the eye. But people who are being victimized will often tell us. And so we need to listen. We need to be willing to hear what they're saying. And although we can't fix their problem, we can be informed and send them towards resources or people that may be able to do that. So I think that's what I would say. Well, Romana, I really want to thank you for being here with us today, sharing your story, you know, really diving into dissociation, everything that you were dealing with and how that affected so many different parts of your life and how it formed in childhood, you know, when it came to your mom and everything that you dealt with in the offshoots of it, you know, dealing with your uh, first ex-husband and how your mom had him intertwined, both of them kind of intertwined into your life when you didn't want both of them in your life, really, in, in a big way. And everything that you've been through, I know you're going to help a lot of people today by sharing your story and, and what you went through. So just a big thank you for, for being here and sharing everything from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much, Romana, for being here. Well, it's been a pleasure and it's been very cathartic. And uh, thank you for all the work you do to bring these issues into the forefront. Well, thank you once again, Romana, for being here. And if you want to be a guest like Romana was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And also at NarcissistApocalypse.com, we have our own support group. So go to the website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, click on the support group button. There you will see that we have our very own safe social network and inside that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday nights, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. It's a great group of people on there. You can make friends as well. And just join our support group today. If you need support at NarcissistApocalypse.com, click on that support group button and we will see you there. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you are dealing with. They have every phone number, email address, and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you're in. DomesticShelters.org has it there, so visit them today. 
And that is it for our show today. So for myself and Romana, we hope you have a good night.